We have a proper legend for you on our latest episode of Soundtracking in the shape of virtuoso trumpeter and composer Terence Blanchard. A well-established jazz musician in his own right, Terence was given a break scoring Jungle Fever by Spike Lee, for whom he subsequently become the go-to guy. Their latest collaboration is The Five Bloods, which you can watch now on Netflix. He's also just scored HBO's Perry Mason, of which plenty more shortly. But first, a word from our friends at Wild. Now, we all want to do as much as we can to be environmentally conscious. So it's great to see a company like Wild, a natural deodorant company, focus on performance, style, but also sustainability. Utilising the power of nature, Wild has created a fantastic natural deodorant that really works and it smells incredible. The stylish and reusable Wild applicator is made from durable aluminium and recycled plastics, details to ensure it lasts for years, not months. Meanwhile, their deodorant refills are 100% biodegradable, recyclable and plastic free. It's free of aluminium and parabens whilst also being cruelty-free and vegan, making it a world-first design and raising the bar for sustainability. Now, starting from £12 and with refills available on a flexible subscription for just £5 per refill, Wild offers five gorgeous scents. We've got Coconut Dreams, Mint Fresh, Rose Blush, Bergamot Rituals and Orange Zest. There are also four case colours to choose from, so, well, you can truly customise your order. There is free shipping within the UK with 100% satisfaction guaranteed and the clever design means that your order will fit straight through your letterbox. And for being part of the Soundtracking family, we have an exclusive offer for you. 20% off your first Wild Deodorant purchase on their website, wearewild.com. Just use the code SOUND at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you use SOUND at checkout. Just head to wearewild.com. Go wild today and get yourself this natural, refillable deodorant that genuinely works. And so to this week's guest, Terence Blanchard, and his work with Spike Lee and others. We'll begin with a cue from The Five Bloods, entitled Paul is Bitten. Listen, thank you so much for your time, sir. It's it's real a real pleasure and honour to get the chance to um to chat to you. And what's been really wonderful over the last kind of um few days and kind of preparation has just been surrounding myself by your incredible music. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it's been really lovely just to just to kind of almost um, you know, take it away from the pictures in a way and just be driving around and and, and listening to it as a solitary thing. That's a really beautiful beautiful experience so thank you for that thank you for saying i felt like today as well it was it was i I wanted to mention obviously the very sad passing of of um maestro um morricone and and the trumpet obviously being his his first instrument you know in terms of where he found his voice and and how that very much 
relates to you in terms of the trumpet being one of the first instruments that you, um, I imagine, you know, piano, I know was the first, but then you moved on to trumpet very, very quickly. And if you don't mind starting talking about that as an instrument and how you're able to express yourself and what you find in that instrument in the way that it can convey and tell stories. Well, what, what happened with me was, you know, I started playing piano as a kid very early on, but there was a local musician here in New Orleans. His name was Alvin Alcorn, a great trumpet player. To my elementary school and uh, he gave a demonstration of, of, of New Orleans traditional music and I'll never forget it. There was something about the vibrato and the way he was phrasing that had more of like a vocal-like quality. It felt like something that was alive. It felt like a thing, like a living thing. And I was just hooked. Even though I was a little kid, I was just mesmerized by it. I'm like, what is he doing? I didn't realize it was vibrato. (laughs) (laughs) But what is that? You know, and from that moment on, I've just been struck by any trumpet player like Louis Armstrong, like a lot of dudes I listened to growing up who have that quality of bringing the instrument well beyond the the realm of of it, you know, being related to a, a bugle. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, anyone who can take the instrument and, and breathe life into it is, you know, I've always been a big fan of. Uh, because if you can do that and get to that level, there's a certain spiritual quality to me to, to the sound of the trumpet that I think is powerful. How do you when when you're writing score? Do you have a do you have a starting point in terms of you start on? a specific instrument and do you, you know, do you have a kind of, not a, not a format to it, but do you have a, a procedure that's the kind of, you know, your, your preferred, I guess? Well, you know, Edith, that's one of the things I, I try to teach my students all the time about developing the tools of composition because you never know where inspiration is going to come from. You know what I mean? And, and, and you have to learn how to go with it. Sometimes it can come from just a sound. Sometimes it can come from a chord progression or chord color. Sometimes it, it can start with a melody. It really doesn't, it, it, it changes from time to time. And my composition teacher always told me, he said, you know, the music's out there speaking to you. You have to learn how to listen. <laughs> you know, he says, sometimes your ego gets in the way and says, oh man, that ain't it. <laughs> No, that's your ego wanting to be something else and not realizing that sometimes it can be something simple. Yeah. It doesn't have to be really complex. Or sometimes it is complex. Sometimes there are a bunch of notes that you have to figure out. But it's having the tools 
to be able to manipulate that and develop those ideas, that's the most important thing, I think, when it comes to composition, you know, because you can find inspiration in anything. It's really lovely. Um, I'm trying to think of when it was, but it was, it was towards the end of last year and we had the absolute pleasure of spending a bit of time with um, Edward Norton to talk about Motherless Brooklyn. And he talked about your your very dear friend, of course, who he worked with on that, Mr. Marsalis, and just how instrumental he was to the entire kind of story almost of that of that film and the narrative and how that and his playing was the seed almost to that storytelling which is wonderful to hear That's the one thing about certain filmmakers who can recognize that music can be that other character. Mm. You know, um, music can be that thing that can say so much. The drug in this business is when you find that project where there's like beautiful acting, great cinematography and all of those things. Because the thing that I find, with, when all of those things come together, they speak to me as a composer. And there may be some moments where an actor's not doing nothing, but there's just a look, an expression on their face. And the music says, okay, this is what it needs to be. You know, <laughs> or there's a, there's a shot that's just so beautiful where, you know, you hear colors. It's a weird kind of thing to explain, but I know I, when I experience it, you know, there's certain times I see things and I go, oh, that's this sound, you know, with strings and woodwinds up here, yeah. you know? And when people recognize that as filmmakers and give you room to do that, then you, you, you can bring something to the table that they're not, they, they, they can't see, you know? And, uh, but if they're open to it, it can be a really great marriage. The thing you have to realize is that great directors, all of them, recognize that when it comes to music, it's one of the few things that they really can control. You know, when you're directing, you can say to an actor, hey man, this is this, blah, blah. And you still have the, the, the script, mm -hmm. you know, you tell a cinematographer, I want to shoot it from this angle. You go through all those, even in the editing process. But when it comes to music, you can give direction and say, hey man, I'm thinking about this type of song. But then you got to let us go with our own room and leave us with our own devices to create. Yeah. And, and you have to, there's a leap of faith that all directors have to have. And good for Ed, man. I, I've, I've known Ed for a while. He's a good dude, you know, and he's a great actor, you know. And he, he's the type of person that can recognize how important that is in, in, the, in the development of telling the story. Yeah, it was a beautiful film. I loved that film. I thought it was... Absolutely stunning. Mm -hmm. 
it's been so nice as well like you're talking about how how that the music can really really kind of speak to you and you know most recently um the five bloods on which which i watched at you the most recent spike lee project that you worked on and there's so much the music has has so many sort of jobs almost within the film you know you've got all these great you know and spike's kind of historically brilliant at choosing you know needle drops and things as well he's clearly a very very dear and adores Marvin Gaye in the way that he uses Marvin Gaye, whether that's, you know, Summer of Sam, I love the way he used it, you know, in, in that and, and the way that it's used in this, but your score in this is extraordinary and it has to cross different time frames as well, you know, with these characters and these, these two kind of parallels that are running as well. And I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that and whether that was a conversation that you had with Spike and, there's one particular cue, Rice Paddies, I think it's called, which is just, oh, it breaks me that. It's such a beautiful piece of music. How did you approach the idea that these characters were, were kind of crossing two time frames? Was that something that came into how you would approach the score? Well, it was something that we talked about for sure in terms of him just telling me what the story was about. But the thing about Spike, man, the way we work is that once, once we come up with like some thematic material, he kind of leaves me alone. Yeah, and it's I, I had to get I had to get used to it, you know what I mean? Because yeah, at, yeah. Because at first I would always want him to hear something, and he would be like, "Yeah, okay, man, all right, yeah, yeah, all right, whatever." You know, I'm like, "Dude," <laughs> but I, but I, it, it it hit me. I forgot which film it was when we were recording the score, and then uh, he said, "You guys finished?" You know, I'm like, "Is that a good take?" And we would go, "Yeah," and then he would come to the control board, and then he would want to hear it. You know, and I realized, I'm like, oh, he's trying, to, he's trying to get that effect an audience would get. He's not trying to have any preconceived notions about yeah. it. So for me, that started this long journey of me realizing how much he trusted me in creating the music. So when it comes to things like you're talking about, I take a lot of time and effort into deciphering all of those things. And the beautiful thing about our working relationship is that I've grown to know, you know, his cinematic style. And we have a similar view of what we want to do with these characters in terms of 
creating a certain grandeur for them and making their experience more universal. Mm. A lot of people won't see them just as African-American characters, but see them as human beings. So I'm always cognizant of that fact, you know? So when you think about the MLK assassination, you know, for me, it's a powerful scene because these guys are given the ultimate sacrifice. They're out there risking their lives, trying to fight for rights that they don't have themselves. Yeah. And to have someone who was fighting for their rights killed and to find out about it from the enemy had to be a jolt to the system. Yeah. can't divorce my own personal experience from most of these stories that Spike will do. And I have to bring all of that to bear. So when, when, you, when you talk about rice patties, you know, I'm thinking about all of those things, the level of sacrifice that these guys have given. That's just on a human level. And then on the other side of it, there's the artistic side with the way Spike has shot it the way they've edited it and put it together and just the performances by the actors, you know, um, the analogy I've been using of late is like, uh, you know, playing with LeBron James and there's, there's two seconds left on the clock and you're the only dude open. <laughs> you know? And he passes you the ball for a perfect shot. You know, it's like, no nah, pressure. Right. Don't screw it up. <laughs> Do you think that that trust came from the fact that you you played on his films before you were his his composer, and you you know you were you were part of that team for for was it do the right thing and 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 Mo Bear Blues as well. So do you think that that's almost kind of you know he's seen you know he's seen the work that you've done before. I guess the pressure was on you in a way. Uh no. Okay. <laughs> I, no, I think with Spike. I mean, I could be wrong, but I. I, I I think with Spike, Spike, there was another guy uh, who passed away. He was, his name was Raymond Jones. Spike was hiring us all to write little things. You know what I mean? Like well, he heard something I was messing around with on the piano when we were doing music for More Better Blues. And then he asked to use it. And then he wanted me to write a string arrangement for it. Mm -hmm. So I think that was my audition. 
Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think when I when I came in with the arrangement, he heard it, you know, he came over to me and he goes, man, you got a future in this business. And I went, okay. You know, I didn't think nothing of it. You know, I, I was like, thank you, <laughs> you know. And then after that, man, he called me to do Jungle Fever. And even when we did Jungle Fever, I thought it was just like a one-off. When it came time to do Malcolm X, that was such a big project. I just figured he was going to go get a well-established person to do that and you are you were you are you are established as a musician that's the thing you know you're not as a composer not as a yeah i mean yeah thank you i mean as a musician yeah i had i had uh developed a reputation and and established myself as a performer but writing for orchestra (laughs) that's that's something totally different So when it came time to uh, think about it, and he called me and asked me did I want to do it, I immediately, you know, started studying scores. You know, I started picking up film scores on CDs, and I would just constantly listen. I just did a ton of homework. Who did you listen to? Oh, man. I, I listened to everybody. Uh, John Williams, uh, uh, Thomas Newman. Jerry Goldsmith, uh, Elmer Bernstein, Quincy Jones, 
whoever was out at the time, <laughs> yeah, I was I was trying to find a handle on it. And then I went back and I started listening to you know great classical music that I love, Stravinsky and you know, Debussy and stuff like that, <clears throat> just to get a handle on how an orchestra can move. And and then I just kept working, and I'm still trying to grow from that moment on. I guess that's the wonderful thing, isn't it, with composing is that each you're almost kind of set a task in a way, but each experience is very different and unique to that, to the requirements of that based on the narrative, the director, the performances. And so I guess that that's, you know, with each project it is kind of like learning a new thing almost in a way, but using everything prior to that with it. It is. You know, the, the, the crazy thing about it, I've been on so many panel discussions with other composers, <laughs> and it was such a therapeutic thing to hear them say the exact same thing that I feel, which is whenever you start a project, you feel like you don't really know how to do this. <laughs> you know, there's a, I don't know what it is about it. There's a, you, you can look at a film and you just go, okay, uh, what do I do? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. There's, there's that moment of just like total, I don't want to say, it's not fear, but it's just like a questioning of like, okay, what is this? And I think the reason for that is, and this is just my own thoughts, I think that happens because theoretically you realize there's so many ways to approach it. Mm-hmm. And you have to find the way that's going to resonate with the director. Now, in Spike's case, we've been working together for so long, that's a no-brainer. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, got it. But when you're working with some people for the first time, you have to kind of like go through that process of developing a baseline of trying to figure out how we're going to deal with the musical language. Because when I say blue, what does that mean for you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That part of it can be scary, but it takes a minute. But once you get past that, things kind of can fall in line. Yeah. The other thing, too, is that you got to let the story tell you what it needs. You can't go in there with an ego and say, oh, man, this is gonna, I'm, it's going to be this. But no, 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 no. You never know. I've, I've done that so many times where I watch a film and I go, oh, I know what it is. And then you sit down with the film and you go, oh, it's really not that. You know, when you spend time with it and you start to see the structure of it and you start to see the little nuances in it and the things that the director wants to pay attention to, yeah, it can, it can really change. I want to talk about um, Perry Mason in a second, but I can't not talk to you about Black Klansman as well. I mean, all the congratulations for everything about that film. Such a brilliant film, huge success. Working with Spike in general and the, and the stories that he tells and the voices that he allows to speak is, is so important and always has been, but feels more so than ever. But Black Klansman was an extraordinary film. And, and I was listening to the score on that, and I think what was so clever as well was the... You know, the way that you incorporated that kind of um, military, military, dr- I mean, drumming, here's me trying to put it into words, but 
again, it's like it's all, it's all emotion when I watch it and I listen to it, but trying to vocalise it can be difficult sometimes. that kind of you know this sort of those historical military drumming patterns that are that are beautifully and really cleverly weaved into parts of the score and yet yeah, so seamless but so powerful as well yeah well you know the thing about that is that you know we were really trying to in a way to try we were trying to show the absurdity of it all it's it's like you know first of all who knew that up in that part of the country that the Klan was that strong. I had no idea. You know, I always thought it was a Southern thing, you know, primarily based in the South. And then for Ron Stallworth to be a rookie cop and to infiltrate the Klan on the phone is also <laughs> absurd and crazy, you know? Um, so good. But the other part of it, the main part of it too, is that I had fun with the period. Hmm. When, when you saw John David's uh, character as Ron Stallworth enter the first frame with that afro and that leather jacket and those jeans, man, it brought me right back to my days in high school. Oh my God. yourself in there again I love it they're all personal experiences that are going into these it's great yeah I mean I, I thought about it I remember for some reason the anxiety of trying to get that first dance at the dance <laughs> you know when you're a little kid yeah. all of that stuff came back but I, but the other thing that I thought about too was Jimi Hendrix you know playing the national anthem and just how radical it was at the time but radical in a way that 
this guy had served his country and he was very patriotic and he did what I thought was a very patriotic thing in playing the national anthem that way because it was screaming well like we were just talking about for the five bloods yeah. you know screaming to have his rights you know just like everybody else trying to show the, 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 the dual side of, of this coin. Uh, and we're starting to see all the results of that with all of these movements that are happening all over the world now. Uh, people trying to fight bigotry, intolerance, and hatred. Uh, because we're, we're all human beings. You know, it's, 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 it's an absurd notion to see people who call themselves Christians but still can judge people based on skin color, type, or religious backgrounds. And with that film, that film, the entire film is all about the weird kind of juxtaposition of those two things. Yeah. It was such a treat to go back and, you know, I only, you know, it, it wasn't that long ago it was released, but to kind of, to be, to go, oh, let's watch it again. It was just, oh, it was so... Thank it's you. so, so, so great. And I'm so glad as well that Spike was, that the writing for that film was really recognised as well. You know, I think that, that that's a, 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 you know, a really important part in terms of, of that tone, like you talk about for that film in particular, was so powerful because the tone was so right of that kind of, you know, the absurdity of, of yes. what, um, what was going on. It was brilliant to see. No, Kevin, Kevin Wilmot is a really great writer. Him and Spike did a great job putting it together. And I think what really struck people, we talked we talked about it a lot when, you know, the film was released. I think what struck people was it wasn't a piece of fiction, you know? It was something that happened in real life. And I think the montage at the end really, really helps to wake people up to we haven't moved the needle as far as we thought we had. Yeah. You know? Because that, that, it's a really big shock, you know, to go through that entire film, uh, all of that clothing from the 70s, hear all of that music from the 70s, and at the end have this montage being present day, and there not be much difference between the two.
that to me was one of the things that made me proud to be a part of that film because in a way, I think that kind of set the table for what we're seeing right now. You know, people are finally realizing, you know, there's something we have to do about it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's been a thorn on our side in, in the, throughout the globe, you know, and, and it's beautiful to see all of these movements around the world where people are starting to stand up for their rights. Yeah. I think that that's what makes Spike such a unique and brilliant and powerful storyteller is the way that he constructs his films. And even in The Five Bloods and the way that he uses real footage and and that to to really emphasize things and to really shock you into, mm-hmm. and to remember, and you know, about with Vietnam in particular, to remember what, what was going on and, and how bad it was. And, right. and it, it's just, he's so great at kind of, of just really kind of almost slapping you in the face of going, you know, it's, it's, it's a like physical I, thing. Yeah. Well, the thing that I think Spike has really been great at that people really don't realize is it's almost like he's created a new genre of film where it's part fiction, part documentary. Yeah. And he's been great at that. And he's also, he's also just been great at doing documentaries. I mean, you can't forget Four Little Girls. Yeah, and the Hurricane Katrina doc as well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's been, he's been really great at that. He's getting ready to do another one pretty soon about New York and 9-11 and everything. So wow. when you watch his films, I've always been sh- struck by the notion of how his background as a documentarian constantly finds itself in his, in his filmmaking process. Yeah. For you as a composer, is it a different process composing for a feature film, for a doc, and then obviously for Perry Mason, this TV series, which is great, and the score for it is just beautiful as well. And lovely having that kind of time period to kind of luxuriate in as well, I guess, you know, as a musician, because it's, you know, the world of jazz as well. It's like, it's almost like getting getting into a comfortable bed in a way, isn't it? It's like, oh, yeah. Well, you know, it kind of, with Perry Mason... I think that the, 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 the difference between the three is basically about intent, how you want to tell stories. Yeah. Documentaries are a little different because it's just heavy laden with, with, with verbiage and you don't want to get in the way of that. You just want to kind of like enhance that. Perry Mason, the thing that's been like really great about Perry Mason is the discovery process. It's been a joy working on a TV series that has allowed me to just try to find something. You know what I mean? Like, the, you know, Tim Van Patten, he wasn't looking for a definite thing. Mm-hmm. You know, we met, we had initial conversations, you know, about just wanting to try something new and see what we come up with. And he was open to a lot of things. And then I just enjoyed kind of being in a laboratory, just trying stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's, that's literally what it felt like. You know, it felt like, okay, let's just see. Let me put this with this. Oh, that actually kind of works. Mm-hmm. Oh, we try to do this. Let me not just use a jazz band like everybody would use a jazz band. Yeah. I mean, okay, that 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 would be great, but I mean, I want to do something different. Uh, you know, and having a background in both worlds, I felt like I needed to combine both things.
so it's been a journey, you know, and I'd be curious to see how people re react to the coming episodes because one of the things Tim uh, talked to me about is like the entire series is a journey, you know what I mean? So each one, each episode is kind of scored a little differently. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's not like a recurring theme that comes back exactly the same way every time. It just doesn't happen because it, it can't. It goes back to the thing of like allowing the story to tell you what it needs. Yeah. I used to love as a kid watching um, kind of detective series on on telly and they always had those kind of, the detective always had that kind of theme tune that almost just before he came on, 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 you know, in vision, you'd have the kind of like, you know, oh, he's coming kind of, you'd have that kind of smoky kind of sort of theme <laughs> of him kind of coming in sort of thing. I have such, it makes me really smile thinking about it. I've been to my granddad's and watching kind of Saturday night sort of detective series and, oh, yeah, 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 and yeah. having that kind of kind of comfortable feeling sort of thing almost of it. That's the thing about this series that we, we view the entire series as a story. They don't even call them episodes. They call them chapters. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like the whole series is one movie. Yeah. Before I let you go, I've got, um, do you mind if I just talk to you quickly about One Night in Miami as well? Because I'm so excited to... Well, I love Regina King. And what was really interesting as well was I was very lucky to speak to both Barry Jenkins and Nicholas Brattel about um, If Beale Street Could Talk. And one of the things that Nicholas said about the score for that was that if someone else had played that character, the score would have been totally different because it was very much written around Regina's performance and, and uh, you know, and what she gave to that character and what exuded from that performance as well, which I found absolutely fascinating and brilliant. But I'm so excited to hear her voice as a director. What's she like as a boss then? You know, she's the boss, man. <laughs> she, she's brilliant. Yeah, I bet. Let me just say that. She's brilliant. She's smart. She is, it's that rare combination of somebody who's extremely cool to be around, but definitely knows what she's doing, you know, and knows what she's looking for. I told her, I said, you put together a phenomenal movie. You know, I said, uh, I said, get ready, because your life's about to change. <laughs> uh, because I think what she did with this film she found four great actors, you know, to play these roles. And the way this film is put together, it is such a uniquely brilliant story. Yeah. That, you know, I'm just, um, I'm, I'm, I told her I'm honored to just be thought of to be a part of, you know, because uh, she did a phenomenal job. I can't wait for people to see what it is that she's put together. 
to me. I mean, the idea of casting as well, you know, people, actors to play, you know, Malcolm X, we know it's been done brilliantly before, but but combined with sort of, you know, Sam Cooke and Cassius Clay and, and, and everybody else within that story and stuff, I'm so excited to see her choices, both as a director on screen and, and how it's, it, the story's played out. Let me just tell you this. The film is so great, I think, that I don't know how to put this. The film is so great that within the first five minutes, you're not thinking about who's playing these characters. I bought into it like immediate, you know, and I went, whoa, okay. And I had to catch myself, you know, because I'm watching it without a score. And I'm going, whoa, okay. That goes back to that LeBron James analogy. I was <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Here I am again in the corner all alone, two seconds left on the clock. Uh... But... Everybody did a phenomenal job. And she's just cool people, man. You know, I met her when we did the Oscar run, when they called everybody's name up to take a picture at the luncheon for all of the nominees. I was standing next to her. Yeah. Yeah. Had you got the job yet? No, 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 no. I didn't even know, I didn't even know she was doing the movie. No, 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 no. And I told her, I said, man, I got to call my mom and tell her I'm standing next to Regina King. <laughs> she says, I got to call my mom and tell her I'm standing next to Terrence Ratchet. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And we were just cool from that moment on. And then we actually hung out in London, man, at the BAFTAs. Nick, Barry, Regina, myself, my wife, we all hung out together, man, and just had a great time. Nick is one of my good friends. That's a, he's a sweet dude, man. He's great. Yeah, he's wonderful. Yeah. I was just on the phone with him a couple of days ago. Oh, give him my love when you speak to him next. Listen, next time you're in London, we can, hopefully we can get to do this again in person. And I'd love to get the chance to speak to you again for One Night in Miami when it's coming out as well. Looks like cinemas might be reopening, so we have everything crossed now as well, which is great. Yeah! Um, Terence, thank you so much for your time, sir. It's, as I say, it's a real pr- privilege and honour to, um, to get to chat to you. And thank you for everything and look forward to what's to come as well. Thank you. Thank you. It's been great talking to you. You too. Stay safe. Thank you, sir. Bye. From his score to Perry Mason, that's your Under Arrest by Terence Blanchard, running off this latest episode of Soundtracking with the trumpeter and composer. My huge thanks to Terence for taking the time to talk to me from New Orleans. Spike Lee's The Five Bloods is available to watch on Netflix now, whilst you can see Perry Mason on Sky or Now TV, with the score for that available via a very good friend at Water Tower Music. Now, we will, as we always do, put up a Spotify playlist for this show at edithbowman.com. And that's where you can also find every single episode of this podcast, including my conversations with Ed Norton, Barry Jenkins and Nicholas Brutel. 
Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK. And you can also see Terence's lovely face by heading to our YouTube channel, where I publish a regular show featuring all manner of interesting folk from the world of film and music. A bit of a kind of companion piece to this podcast. Next up is legendary composer and songwriter Glenn Ballard, who joins me to discuss his work on Damien Chazelle's The Eddie. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. In the meantime, stay safe. Stay safe.